Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Alex Jokes. <laughs> Hi, Alex. Welcome to our podcast. So I know you from the Melbourne Agile community. The scene, um, yes. The scene, which is which is actually a really good community. We run into each other at last conferences. And I was on your podcast a couple of years ago. That's right. Happy to have mm. you there. Yeah. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get on to the topic of the day, which is agile transformation. Yep. So I run a small consultancy with, with Tony Fifoot called Reboot Co. And we help organizations improve and transform their whole delivery of value by consulting and coaching, much like a lot of our peers and colleagues do. And we leverage Agile and Lean and our people's experience to do that. My journey with Agile software development started in 1997 and the first methodology I was involved in was called DSDM. So back mm -hmm. in the, back in the days before the manifesto, I was a developer, I worked in a consultancy and I was passionate about methods and methodologies and through the meetup community in the UK, where I was living and working at the time, I came across a company called Saltworks. You probably heard of them and worked there for four years, learned all about extreme programming then, became even more passionate about this umbrella term agile. And then after ThoughtWorks returning to Australia and having kids, I worked more for end user companies. So started to do transforming ways of working as part of my roles there. So by then I was delivery manager or head of tech in different organizations. And for a couple of those organizations, I was also the sole catalyst of that transformation. So I guess it, it hasn't really ever seemed that hard to me. It was just kind of applying all these good things that we learned back then to this new challenging situation I had, which was generally these organizations are old, they're set in their ways, they're, you know, wasting a lot of time and energy, they're creating poor quality, that kind of thing. So then in about 2015, I returned to consulting and applying transformational way of working and changing and embedding these ways of working and worked at different small consultancies and different kind of short-term gigs. And then four years ago, Tony and I started Reboot Co. Been doing it ever since. Great. And I can see you've got 10 consultants now, including you guys. Yeah. Good yeah. News. So we've had a good couple of years. It's been quite a good pandemic for us, which <laughs> is, you know, we're just fortunate that our clients were essential retail and banks. And, you know, if, if all of our clients had been, you know, travel or, you know, other, you know, at threat industries, I guess we wouldn't have had such a, a good time of it. But, you know, we also were fortunate in that we had worked in organizations that had had a lot of remote working. So I had worked in an organization that had a, an offshore China part of their development. And I'd worked in an organization that had worked from anywhere as an ethos quite early on. So mm -hmm. we had learned a lot, or we thought we knew a lot, but we learned a lot more, I guess, as, as it rolled on. Yeah, when lockdown happened and we started becoming remote because we had no choice, yeah. was there a, a kind of an upturn in people that were looking to change the way they worked? Or was it, like you said, you already had companies that were experimenting or becoming proficient with remote working, so they're just doubling down? Yeah, did, yeah, yeah. did you see a lot more walk-ins through the door of holy hell, we have to change the way we work and give us some help? Yeah, I mean, both. I would say, you know, we saw one one thing that was very interesting to me was that the organisations that 
had already implemented quite a lot of agile and lean ways of working, had these kind of concepts of self-organizing team could adapt quicker. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, but that's one of the reasons that we do this is so that we're ready to adapt a bit quicker. And it meant that we saw a lot of senior leaders in panicky meetings. And so teams where they could just self-organize understood that even if our managers aren't all over us for the next couple of weeks, we can still be delivering what we were delivering and still the right thing to do. So you saw a lot of self-sufficiency help organizations be quite resilient and adapt well. And then we also saw organizations that suddenly, oh my God, we have to put thousands and thousands of people on a VPN because we've been so office centric and we've had these rules of the work happens at an office and and on this computer. They lost a lot of traction initially, but then everyone learned about Zoom and stuff like that very, very quickly, didn't they? And started to share those experiences. So we wanted to talk to you about transformations. Do they, do they work or not? Because the idea of a transformation, I think, is an old idea. Mm. It's, it's an idea of a step change. You unfreeze the organization, you change it, and then you refreeze it. So it's a, You go away and a, everything's fine then. <laughs> and everything's done, right? And success inevitably happens and people are promoted. <laughs> and yet when we, we look out at all the companies who say they're doing agile, which is nearly everybody now, yeah. it's actually very disheartening. So for example, I've just done some polls on LinkedIn where I ask people, if you're in an agile organization, are you fitting with the agile values or not? Are you uncovering better ways of developing products and software by doing it and helping others do it? 80% of agile organizations said no. What's more important, following a plan or responding to a change? 54% said following a plan. And that's in what's supposedly an agile organization. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, are these transformations um, real. really working? It's a really good observation. A friend of mine, Michelle Playfair, said, when the dust settles, I would love to buy your coffee and you can teach me why I shouldn't loathe this whole concept of transformation. <laughs> it threw me for a moment because I thought, oh, yeah, there are people out there that view this as a negative thing. And I guess, you know, we don't because we work with a lot of clients and they're really used to the concept of having a transformation. They might have a cloud, build everything in the cloud transformation. They might have a transformation, which is about, I don't know, data, for example, showing something that you're deeply involved in. They might have like a data literacy transformation. They might have a diversity transformation. They might have a um, product engineering type of thing going on or, or it might even be a replatforming let's get off our legacy so transformation in those big organizations isn't viewed as such a negative thing and, and we swim in that kind of water so it, it surprised me that there is this kind of skepticism out there amongst maybe the digital organizations that haven't had to go through transformation because they're these baby organizations and they they fit very nicely with these concepts anyway so it's not just mm. us Harvard Business Review, McKinsey and BCG have a whole series of articles about how 80 or 90% of transformations fail to achieve the outcomes that, that were expected. Yes, I suppose you're right. And full disclosure, one of my most earliest transformations, I used it as a case study for every interview I went to. I was basically like, I have transformed them. They will not go back now. They refuse to work in any other way. It is now self-sustaining. And then that worked for about five years 
And then I started to hear back, oh, a new person has come in and they have undone some of this. So that that can happen. And that doesn't mean that transformation wasn't a success. It just means that transformation is a constant state and you should expect that change can happen or an undoing could happen as a change of leadership happens. If you look at the lean body of work, they have that word Kaizen, which means good change or continuous improvement. And if we are in organisations that have internalised that idea of continuous improvement, happy days. We're all continuously improving all the time. It's in the language. No one will freak out if you're making changes because it's part of the culture. However, in Lean, they have that concept of kakaidu, I think is the word, which is radical reform or step change, as you said, Murray. And that is that when the sum of all of the continuous improvements would not get you to where you have to go, that's when you need this radical reform and this kind of step change. And you know, continuous improvement or Kaizen is possible when at the very top levels of the organization, they promote that idea, push that idea. And and they say in this organization, it's safe to continuously improve. You don't have to be running on the hamster wheel all the time. You can devote some time to improving yourself. But if you need a step change, you need that air cover. You need the the highest levels in the organization just to say, we're creating a bigger space for you to go in and have a bigger step change. And we're going to call that a transformation program. I think the problem is everyone heaps their benefits onto your transformation. So we've probably all seen agile transformations where people say, oh, it's going to be less managers. It's going to be faster. It's going to be better quality. And it's like, how many improvements do you want to stick on this one thing? And then because it becomes this kind of morass of benefits that people are claiming, it's very hard to then measure. Did you achieve that benefit? So we lump them all together, then very hard to prove or disprove whether you've achieved that. And furthermore, do we have good discipline around measuring our transformation success? Transformation is one of my trigger words. I think if I, if I look at project managers, the reason that it's a trigger word for me is because I see a certain amount of immutable behavior that comes with that role. Once you call them a project manager, they behave like the project manager. And for me, the word transformation is being sold to the executive of, we're going to completely change your organization in two years with 300,000 consultants, and then you're done. But if you use the word change, I'm okay. So I, I get your point about some companies don't want to change and they need this way of thinking they have to transform to to do that Mm. i like the idea that when we hear the word transformation we know that we have buy-in we know that senior people are willing to allow change to happen but i still think the word transforming has been vendor washed right it's now a probably but hasn't agile hasn't everything and does that matter so agile hasn't yet but the safe community are doing their best to make sure it does (laughs) And does it matter? Does it matter? I think it does. I think it degrades the value and the focus that people who are working to help a company change the way they work. So the way I articulate it is agile transformation is not the goal. Oh, correct. A hundred percent. And if you're measuring agile maturity as your benchmark of whether you're being successful or not, you've missed the point and you'll achieve agile maturity, but will you increase value delivery? I mean, I, I think that's where lean helps us more than agile software development, which is an umbrella term. Let's all remember where agile software development came from, because I remember, which is we had all of these methodologies, a group of people got together and they were so passionate about making things better. They said, let's create a collective term. And that term could have been lightweight methodologies. So if you listen to 
Stephen Denning talking to Alistair Coburn, they talked about Snowbird and how lightweight methodologies was going to be one of the terms instead of agile methodologies. And so imagine now if we were saying we use lightweight methodologies, I mean, safe couldn't exist, could it? I should actually say I'm not a safe hater. I worked in a very large organisation and we tried transforming this joint using good patterns, not approaches or methodologies. So we we talked about Spotify as a good pattern. We talked about tribes and squads and chapters. This was back in 2014. And it didn't get as much traction as SAFE did. So in some ways, I think of it as a if you if you need a Trojan horse to get some of these more contemporary practices and thinking into the door, you know, start where you are, use what you have. Do what you can. Yeah, I don't think we we agree that safe is a stepping stone to agility. But anyway, you don't, you don't think it's even better than waterfall? Would you rather do waterfall, Murray? No, I don't <laughs> think it's agile, and I don't think it's waterfall. It's neither of those things. It's RUP two point Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's a heavyweight process uh, methodology that's that's very prescriptive, and it's not agile. It's not waterfall. Something yeah. on its own. Well, I guess I guess one of the observations I would make of it is when I look at that organisation now, they're still using it and that makes me a bit sad because it's very hard to evolve away from the initial pattern. And I've gone back and visited them and they've said, yeah, you know, we've evolved, we're a bit beyond all of that, but they still stick to it really and they still use the terminology. So it's very hard to undo once you've put it in. And yeah. secondly, people don't have fun when yeah. they're in it. When I observed teams using XP, we had loads of fun. The feeling of doing stuff rapidly was there and doing stuff well was there. Work was enjoyable. And it's kind of like they're taking some of the fun out of it. And, you know, don't we all deserve to have an enjoyable time at work when we create better products and have a better experience if we do? Yes, we do. We had a um, discussion with Joshua Koreski about yes. that, the joy of agility. So I can understand why consulting firms want to do agile <laughs> transformations because it's a good way of selling services and making uh, yeah. money. But why do organisations want to do it? What are they trying to get out of it? Well, why do large consultancies do it? First of all, I, I don't think that they've just gone callously. This is a massive revenue stream, but it is astonishing what they will do and how much they will charge. Incredible. Yeah. And they will ask you to read their 350-page pack. And there is, you know, an element of the exec suite in some organisations still view that as a valid way of starting a big piece of work. So it's really hard for us as a small consultancy to battle those perspectives it's because sometimes they'll just keep trying to push you into that model. Can you just create another pack and another pack and another presentation and reason why we should let you come do this work? But, I mean, I don't think cynically that they're in the game for that. I think they just see it as... We can see organisations getting results by applying these methodologies, ways of working. So therefore, we want to help organisations get better. So that's why we should be in that game. And then they engage, you know, like a very senior, good person at doing that. And they, and they do. They hire great people to come and work with them. And those great people kind of set up a practice for doing it. So I, I don't think anyone gets into it maliciously or sees it just as a never-ending revenue stream. I mean, they are competitive too, and they're ruthless, and they and they have the size to kind of push you out of the way, which is a bit sad. But, you know, I just view it as, look, the pie is big enough for large organisations and small organisations, 
And when the pies are big enough, it's because the wave has come through and everyone's pretty much working that way. And then I can go and do something else for a living, which would be awesome. So what are people trying to get out of it? They are looking around at other organisations and how they are beating them in the market and asking themselves why. How can our biggest competitor deliver so much change so they're, they're just trying to compete with other organisations and they're hearing from the people that they're hiring, hey, you know, I worked at X Bank and we worked in this kind of tribe way. It's probably execs cargo culting in what's worked at other places, to be honest. They're either getting mm-hmm. advised by those management consultancies or they're, they're copying patterns that have worked for them in other ways. And, and that is, I guess, a danger is that we just try and apply what worked at another place without the experience or understanding the nuance of it or understanding what patterns and techniques that we should be applying in these circumstances. So a few years ago, I worked for a large bank in New Zealand. So they did everything, savings account, mortgages, all that kind of stuff. And when you looked at the data, there were a bunch of their products that were highly profitable and there were a large number of products that were not but it had to be provided because, you know, somebody wanted them. So if you looked at the older generation, the, the superannuants, there was, you know, they were lost customers if you ever looked at it that way. So I found that really interesting. And then we saw the the whole fintech startup market and, and I you know, knew some people that started some of those. And, and what they did was they targeted those profitable products and ignored the non-profitable ones, right? It was really simple, you know shitload of money be made in these ones don't have to do the other stuff and they got really successful at it and then what i saw is the big banks go oh oh we've got competitors and somehow it was their agile way of working that was kicking their ass not the fact that they were just building a small targeted profitable business so do you see that when a large organization is under threat, they've been told it's the way of working that's making the difference, not the actual products that the competitor's mm. doing? Is that part of the reason that they want to transform? Well, if the competitor is a threat to the organization, the organization would just buy the competitor. And you see that happening a lot in the big property aggregators. So I'm seeing... A lot of people wanting to do an agile transformation to cut costs mm-hmm. with an expectation of a 15 to 20% reduction in costs of management, of staff, of suppliers. And they think that they can achieve that by doing agile. Oh, oh, well, I would say they could if they made that their one goal. And what a precise figure. I'm interested where it came from. I mean, that must have been published in a big article somewhere, was it? Well, I think there were some articles on ING which said that they managed to cut costs by, by 15 or 20%. Yes. I mean, that'd be interesting to go, okay, well, where did they cut it and what? Yeah, look, I think that's right. Yes. I definitely think you could say is a cost-cutting thing. I think there's lots of categories of benefits that you could pick on. And I think I think transformations should pick on a category of benefit that they're trying to chase. Yeah. What I don't think they should do is pick all eight categories of benefit at the same time, mm-hmm. put that into their big business case and, and promise it because then it looks like a silver bullet, right? And of course, execs and boards will grab at that silver bullet. But I, I think there's lots of different categories. I think employee engagement is a massive one. And mm-hmm. I think I would love it if more organizations put that 
you know, close to the top of the benefits. And I think it's we're in interesting times, aren't we, with the great resignation. We're starting to see what is the cost of losing an employee because mm-hmm. another work culture looks better or another workplace looks a bit more exciting for them. So I think engagement is one. I think that cost saving is one and that purely for me boils down to cost of delay. You know, the yep. sooner we can deliver, then the the more likely we're going to, you know, get the revenue spinning off that feature and cost of delay has an impact. So the sooner you can get your revenue making opportunities into production, it has a massive payoff. And if you go into an organization that isn't doing any agile delivery already, you could say to them, okay, well, how long did your last release take? And they would say nine months, 12 months. You're like, okay, well, now we've got some, you know, a benchmark to which, which we can improve. How about we try and get something out every month or every two months? Wouldn't that be an improvement? Mm. And that's, I think that's quite nicely quantifiable. And then there's, there's tons of other categories. So we could look at a customer NPS as an improvement metric that we're trying to move. We could look at surfacing and management of dependencies. And then there's another big one, I think, which is just making the number of things that we're doing as an organization transparent and very clear, which is surprisingly unclear in, in traditional organizations, making things transparent so that we can constrain how many things are going on is a a real direct benefit that you can get out of a large scale transformation that involves multiple teams, you know, going through this change at the same time or near time. So over the the course of these podcasts we've done, there's kind of two major things that's come out fairly clearly for me. The first one is scaling's hard, (laughs) you know, do it it with one team, do it with a small group of people, do it in a small company, different challenges, but not as hard doing it when it's large. And the second one is that these generations of companies and uh, the 1970s companies are harder to change than uh, a 2010s company. So with that lens on, you're talking about boards and senior managers and business cases and Mm. everybody piling in multiple extra benefits to to take the free ride. And it kind of reminded me of Waterfall, where we do a big plan and lots of features and, and do that. And we don't tend to then prioritize what's the most important. So what's the behind that? Is that the fact that the companies with boards tend to be the older companies who have people who have not worked in an agile way before, don't understand experimentation, want to see a big set of promises for a big amount of money? Is that the behavior that they're looking for? And therefore, agile transformation is kind of okay because we're talking to them in their language to get permission to change the way we work and then it's just how we execute that's the problem yeah. or will we see boards become more agile and the word transformation disappear i think we will see boards become more agile over time as the people that end up on boards have experienced these things the literacy will creep in and that's the business case process right if you haven't gone and agilified the financing of initiatives then you're going to have to play by their rules to be in with to get permission to do that first change and different organizations might approach it in different ways you might approach it by putting someone into the role of a head of transformation okay well at least we acknowledge that there's some transformation that needs to happen that head of transformation must have some access to budget for vendors whatever but you might also have to play by their rules get that initial amount of funding in order to go off and and try some of this but it is large disruptive change So I think it deserves to be discussed at the highest level of the organisation. I don't think it means large disruptive amount of money to do it. I think there are other ways to do it that that 
have more longevity and better outcomes that involve more of the people and less of the flying in consultants maybe. But I think it de- it deserves its amount of attention because it's usually antithetical to current ways of working, right? So we're going to have to unlearn some of those behaviours. We're going to have to undo some of the ways that we manage that work, that command and control ethos, those heavy reliance on packs, the people who are looking for one throat to choke. That's a lot to unwind and relearn kind of new behaviours. So it deserves to have a certain amount of tension, I think. So I agree with you that larger organisations in particular have big problems that Agile can help with. They are full of waste. They are full of bureaucracy and delays. They're often very anti-innovation internally. There's a big gap between what they say and they do and so on. Yeah. I think what it... One of the interesting things over here is is because I'm in Wellington, there's mm. lots of government and lots of people I know go, I'll never work for government because of all those words you've just used. And my feedback to them is it's not a government problem, it's a large organisation problem. Yes. So it doesn't matter which industry you're in, if you're in a large organisation industry, you will typically see those problems. And our default managerial structures, I think. I looked into holacracy and I got kind of interested and I thought like, oh, I'm going to teach myself this thing. The opening gambit, I think, is very interesting, which is basically when as cities grow, innovation grows and business grows. But as organisations grow, innovation slows and everything tends to slow down. Isn't that interesting? Because cities are not constrained by this gated process or lots of hierarchy. And I think that our organisation stray is quite traditional, I think, in the way that we believe management should work. And, you know, those structures stop us from innovating, I think, and make it very complex as the organisation gets bigger. Yeah. So I think that most organisations are designed like a factory that's making cars. Each department is a silo. They do their bit in a highly specialised way, then pass it on to the next one. That works if you're doing exactly the same thing every time. But I think we know from software world, and it's become apparent in other areas like product, that it doesn't work when you're doing anything creative or different because it has uncertainty in it. And siloed models just introduce a lot of delays when there's any uncertainty because you've got to go back, do things. I agree with you that Agile is a big change because we're changing from a siloed waterfall model of organizational structure to a, you know, collaborative team, product-focused, client-focused model that's much more tolerant of uncertainty and change. Yeah, correct. And not only is it hard to get everyone to swap at a particular time, in the time that, that, that two models exist together, they fight each other as well. So you get that kind of friction that occurs. And back in the day, Agile projects used to go really well. Agile teams had really good outcomes. Like, So you'd find a team doing scrum in a cupboard somewhere in an organisation and and people go like, oh, we like that way of working. Let's have more of that. And they would just add more and more people onto this scrum team on this Agile team until you had these 50 people Agile teams and then they would just slow down horribly. We'd be, and we'd be going like, what is it about Agile? It doesn't really work on big teams. And, and so that we spent a long time in the middle ages of Agile going, Agile doesn't scale. And then some of these scaling techniques started to appear. Okay, well, how can we have lightweight ceremonies that maybe stitch some of these um, teams together? Would that work? And so I think Agile has a lot to teach our organisational structures and 
it's a hard change to change how an organisation believes its hierarchy should work and it's kind of how its managers are incentivised and stuff. But I think these ways of working have a lot to teach the next generation of how organisations organise themselves. So what is the best way to change to being an agile organisation? That's a good question because I don't believe there is one way. It's contextual to what you're looking at. And we would talk to a startup differently to a mid-sized organization, differently to a very large organization. I can tell you something that I'm finding is a very common pattern that's worked for our clients is a program of awareness, a program of training and education, followed up by an element of dive in and start, even if it feels a bit uncomfortable, because we can talk about these things for a long time. And it's like any project, you can get lost in the analysis paralysis of it, but you'll learn faster if you start by doing, I believe. Yep. If I had to generalize it to what way works, that would be, it. you've got to do some knowledge, you've got to do some awareness and everything that goes around that. But at some point you've got to start. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, here comes the, one of the few compliments I'll give safe ever. Somehow it seems to be the only approach that I can find where I see senior executives go on a course to get literacy around Agile. You know, you go in there and say, we're doing Scrum with a team uh, in the data space. The chief executive really turns up to, to any of that literacy. I think, I think you're so right. And, you know, the, the problem is one of, you know, have you ever been a middle manager in a big organisation? It's actually punishing. Like you end up in meetings eight hours a day and, you know, you rarely have any slack time. And, and there's so many change programs going on. You're often going from your diversity change program to your cloud change program to your cybersecurity. And so there's not like a lot of spare time. And suddenly someone else comes along with their transformation. You're expected to participate in it. And you're kind of like, oh, no, thanks. I actually have some emails to answer. So I think it's really difficult to get people's time and attention. And that's a paradox, right? Because unless you have the time and attention, the most senior people that have to support this change, then you're going to find it a struggle. And so maybe that comes back to the answer of your question, which is why do agile transformations not work? It's rarely are they set up really nicely, I think, to work. And I would say that even for ours, it's very hard for me to engage at exactly the right level. It takes, you've got to build up trust. And that often means I've got to work for six months with the technology teams before they'll even introduce me to other execs, you know. So it's, it's not just a factor of, well, that agile transformation changed, therefore agile transformations don't work. It's like, it's really hard to get that level of engagement right. And I'm not going to say, well, I'm not working with that client unless I can talk to the CEO. No, I want to work with clients. I want to make things better for them at the, at the team level as well as the high level if I can. So, yeah, I think it's, it, I think it's tricky. So I, I think we agree that it's very important for management and senior management to be on, on board with the agile change and understand the new way of working that is not just about teams doing scrum so how do we how do we take them on the journey what mm. works well I, I think there's a few little secret tricks which have become harder in pandemic times but i think one really powerful thing to do is take people to other organizations to go on tours and i learned this full credit to lenny uh, lena tractor that i worked with for a while they were very good at touring people around 
places that had had the positive impacts of change. It's a good litmus stick to hold up for yourself as well, litmus test, which is if you can take someone to one of your sites and it's a happy reference site for you, you probably did a good job there and you probably got the outcome you wanted. But, you know, people don't believe, even if you took them downstairs to your own organisation who was working this way, they tend not to listen to their own people as much as they will listen to someone from another organisation. I think they're also it's more comfortable for them to listen to a peer of them. So C-suite will, you know, share knowledge with other C-suite. I think that's really powerful as well. And, yeah, just getting people to see it happening for real with their own eyes and having a, you know, very open way for them to ask curious questions. I don't think it's easy for execs inside organisations to admit that maybe they're ignorant about how some of their own organisation is working and ask the potentially dumb-looking questions. So I think, you know, having a bit of empathy with where they're at, meeting them where they're at and showing them other places really works a lot. And then, you know, I think, you know, some of us agile coaches have to take responsibility for the fact that we might not be the best at engaging with those people and we need to level up our skills a bit on that. You know, we might say, like, well, they don't get it or they don't have a clue what's going on or they're all wrong or they're command and control. But have we done one thing to try and talk to these people? Um, have I honed my communication skills enough to have a conversation with them and not talk jargon at them all day which we adult people do that we just push out these phrases all the time test and learn fail fast and you know we don't realize that we need to talk to them how they want to be talked to oh i don't say fail fast anymore because executives hate the idea of failing so what i say is learn fast yeah but, I mean, yeah, great. We have to have empathy with where they're at. And I think a lot of agile coaches, they're very comfortable talking with tech people, talk all day, like those people. They're smart people. They're good. They want to do continuous integration and continuous delivery, and I like that. But, you know, it's probably out of our comfort zone to go and talk to a business exec some of the time. And they can be intimidating, and they know their job so well. You don't get to be a GM or a C-suite in, in one of those roles without clawing your way to the top and knowing your business very, very well. So. Sometimes we have to look in the mirror and go, it's not the problem that they don't get it. We shouldn't expect them to go and read all the Agile books that we've read. We need to talk to them in, in ways that are meaningful to them. So how do you deal with resistance? Resistance is, you know, it's just its own thing. You have to look at what you're dealing with, right? And we're all human beings and everyone's got a reason for why they're resisting your change I suppose so it's about digging into what am I being presented with what is that person afraid of are they afraid of losing control of or having their power taken away from them that's really common as well and they're all valid concerns you know so I think it's just really about really listening and engaging with that person and as I get older I just find that more and more fascinating you know meeting people understanding what motivates them and not coming at them with my agile answers for everything all the time or my, my lean answers for everything, just actually listening to what their real problem is. And because it'll be something hidden underneath that, like the quality wasn't good or the communication was bad or the time frame is taking too long. We talked to a couple of agile coaches earlier on in our series, and they said, if you're encountering resistance to your change the problem is that it's your change not mm -hmm. their change genius yeah and really you just need to offer to help them as best you can and uh, 
if you are actually helping them, they'll be on board. Yeah, definitely. That is so clever, Murray, because a lot of time it's you think you know the answer for what they need and then you can't understand why they can't see the genius in your answer. It's much more powerful to try and create a space for them to ask the question themselves, you know. When you feel threatened, you, you exhibit all these defensive behaviours and you can't hear and you can't process things. So imagine all the people that we come at with our you need to do this, you need to do stand-ups now, you need to do retros, you need to do continuous integration. And all of those people just feeling threatened can't hear what you're saying, essentially. Just coming to the end, I guess, do you think that agile change can be a transformation or do you think it needs to be a, a continual journey of improvement? Well, if we've done our agile transformation right what we will leave people with is continuous improvement as a habit you know as a non-negotiable of how they work yes you can continually improve your way to transformation but my question would be is that going to be fast enough and maybe that's happening at places where you've got teams that are out there doing their own thing but they're not really linked in to a whole organizational cadence or you're letting technology work in these particular ways but the rest of the organization is working in a whole different rhythm this is where agile hasn't helped us in some ways it's because it's one way to do things and it's two week sprints and we should all be squads whereas lean talks much more holistically about the whole system of work and the whole value chain and i worry when agile transformations start and stop within the technology part of the organization and we've left this, this whole value creation part of the machine out of it and so Technology's gotten better, fantastic, but there's still a lot of value that you're not mining for there. I'm wondering if you should use an agile approach to introduce an agile change. So in other words, start with a, a, a vision of where you want to be, create a backlog of changes, prioritize them, pick the first one, work through that, test and learn, do the next one and so on. That's just crazy speak, Murray. <laughs> I know you said that, Murray. The next version of Safe will have that in there, how to implement you, you, Safe. You're, you're just going out into the wilderness, mate. That's I'm just, just going to copyright to... that. <laughs> but yeah, but you I mean, would think that's a good approach? Totally. And that's the article that I'm writing at the moment, which is be agile about your transformation. Yeah. So, you know, have a purpose, clarify that vision, have a metric that you're going to go after. Make it a metric, not eight metrics. Like, like an outcome, not output. Yeah, exactly. You know, have a midterm goal, have a plan, do, check, act cycle. So what we would do, the one of the last places that I was working at is we, every quarter, we would have a little working group, we would have a backlog and every quarter we would come together and go, okay, what are the next things that we should focus on for this quarter? And we would come up with a backlog and it would say everything in it, like all backlogs do. Oh, we should do iteration management coaching, we should do metrics, we should do engineering practices and and then we go okay well we can't do everything so what should we do then we would prioritize that and say okay well this quarter we're going after metrics and we're going after starting a chapter for the iteration managers and those are the the two things that we're going to focus on and nothing else because we're a limited number of people there's all these other things going on at once so let's go after those two goals for the quarter and we would and we would achieve them and we'd go great now we have enough people that know about metrics we have enough people that know that are meeting on the iron chapter what should we go for next should it be engineering practices and that is a perfect way i think and a better way to do a transformation than 
send a consultancy that has a 350-page blueprint of where you're going to get to and how you're going to do it. Yeah. I feel like we need to wrap it up. Yeah, and you, should, I... you should trademark that, though. I think of a snappy name. All right. First of all, thank you for using the word patent at the beginning. It made my heart sing. I love that term, and uh, not enough people in the Agile world use it. You said something along the lines of start where you are, use what you can. Right? It's a, it's a mindset that I love. So we should all be doing that. I really like the analogy of cities grow and don't have hierarchy and control and command-ish, but orgs grow and that's what they get. So going to have to go do some more reading on that one myself because that's really, really interesting. Yeah, um, you go, go watch the Holocracy intros. It's really good. Yeah. I had a small consulting company at one stage and I started down the path of Holocracy, scared the bejesus out of me, so I stopped. Transforming ways of working, I still can't live with that. Change ways of working, right? Transformation, it's a trigger word. I really like the idea literacy is important. So we talk about data literacy all the time in, in the data space, but agile literacy is not really a term that I hear a lot. And language is important because just like in IT and in data, we love to use short words that uh, we know what they mean, but nobody else does. So I like that idea that agile literacy is important and language is important. I love the idea you said Agile is fun, should be fun, right? And, and so I've always prescribed to this idea as Agile is a team sport, but that's often bound around the idea of small teams. It's bound the idea of scrum and, and batching work together. But actually, if we think about it, it should be something we, we have fun with and we work with people. And when we do a transformation, it normally is top down and being done to them. If we think about transformation, you know, a little slug goes into a cocoon and a number of months later, a beautiful butterfly comes out and nobody saw what happened and you can't go back and the butterfly doesn't go forward and change into something nicer after that. And so for me, I've always been keener on transition or change. But I think one of the things that's come out of this talk for me is where you see the word agile transformation happening, it typically means it's being led from the top. So there is investment and permission being given to start and I think you have a choice you can either wait for it to finish and then go in and help carry on the change or you can jump in and lead that work and adopt an agile mindset for it uh, yeah uh, still don't like the word but if I change <laughs> the word transformation in every sentence you used and put the word change, loved all of it. So yeah. I mean, I reckon to cure you of that, I reckon go and read some of Toichi Erno is talking about Kaikaidu and Kaizen at the same time. So he talked about continuous improvement, talked about radical reform and sustaining both of those. And so if you can have that, then you'll, you know, you'll have your successful business. And I love that word Kaikaidu translating to radical reform. And I would love to replace the word transformation with radical reform and walk around saying, you need some radical reform here. You need some real disruption here. Because I think transformation is almost like a blandified word, whereas radical reform is really true. You need some serious change. I think a real agile change in organisation is one of the biggest changes that, that you can do because you're changing parts of the business model of the organization, the way they, they produce products and, and services and software, you're changing the structure, roles, approach, philosophy. It's a big change and it definitely needs senior management support and middle management support as well as the team support. I'm skeptical that it can be done in the step change manner of traditional change management. 
because that has a mindset which is actually against what you're trying to to achieve which is about participation and empowerment and continuous improvement whereas traditional change management is something that senior executives come up with in rooms with paper on the glass so you can't see what's going on and <clears throat> they do it to people and people lose their jobs so i understand why they do it though because it's typically the only way that you can get a business case up for big change and the reason they add it in everything all these long list of benefits is is because that's how they can get all the stakeholders on board by promising everybody something so that's why they do it. Does it work? No, I don't think it does work. I've seen lots of people doing it. I think you can certainly get improvements, but I wonder if the real benefits come after the transformation is finished and then people go on to a continuous improvement mm. approach. Then I think that you're really going to get somewhere. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're thinking transformation is just the kind of the the flag or the signal that hey big change is coming and after a while it's like big change is now happening and i mean that in itself can be a double-edged sword right because then people stop talking about the agile transformation and you're like hang on a minute we said some of these behaviors and practices were really important and we're stopped trying to implement them now and it's all losing a bit of traction so yeah i think it's definitely tricky you know there's definitely no perfect pattern i don't think for agile transformation yet i don't know maybe the big consultancies will come up with it maybe murray just came up with that agile change management is what i'm going to call it i'm um, be introducing a certification and a new course isn't it sad <laughs> that the, the frameworks that have paid certifications are the ones that stick like that yeah. is what's sad like when i heard you talking to scott about dad what a shame <laughs> that the ones that <laughs> Cost more money and a more complex win. Yeah, but I've got yeah. I've got a cutting plan, Murray. So you you go and create the acronym and certify it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to watch for the next company like Spotify to come along and and grant us some insights into their way of working, and then I'm going to create a consulting company that puts it into PowerPoint and goes sells it 500 times because I think I'll be far more successful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you're, I hope you're being cynical, Shane. <laughs> I, I, indeed, I am indeed, yeah. And, that, you know, as much as, um, Murray, you say that the state of affairs in Agile is pretty dire, what's really surprising for me is that we're still teaching companies how to do it because, honestly, what I thought was like, oh, it'll take a couple of years and then all the companies will know about stand-ups and then we'll all be doing stand-ups. It's astonishing to me that it's taken so long to catch hold but i do see it as being inevitable now i had the misfortune to be at the end of a waterfall release with a client not long ago it was kind of self-affirming um because there was thousands of defects in production every meeting was a real fight meetings would run over people worked late it was a real reminder of how awful this big batch high-risk delivery could be so. you know it's very interesting you should say that because i consulted with a big organization a couple of years ago that was doing a big digital transformation that was supposedly agile they had all the big consulting companies in and they had exactly the same story as you just described for their agile project and the reason was 
because the only thing that was agile about it was that the dev team was working in sprints before they handed it over to the test team who would work in their sprints. So although I love agile and I think it, it's really great when you do it properly, it's just so many people doing fake agile out there. It's lost its way a bit maybe. But, you know, that's good news, I guess, if you work in helping those organisations. There's plenty of help that can still be offered. That is just very true. And it's a good news story because we're all passionate about it still. Correct. Yeah. I, I love I listening to, say, to you yeah. talking about your yeah. podcast. It just reminds me of the good old days and going <laughs> off to lunch and having big arguments about releases and TDD and cool stuff like that. But the good thing about it is is there are still, after you know a large number of years, people who are passionate about this thing, Agile, and most people are polite when they argue with each other. Yeah. And um, the thing is, when people are doing it well, there are substantial business benefits. Like I transformed an organization from unprofitable to profitable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's irrefutable. Yeah. So people who do it well, getting a lot of benefit out of it. And I, I guess that's why we, we keep doing it. Yeah. And I, th- so, and I see my job as helping people not fall into those pitfalls of it going wrong. Yeah. So just to get the last word in, I'm going to correct you there, Murray. You changed that organisation from being unprofitable to profitable. So uh, it's been been lovely to catch up and we'll catch you all later. All right. Thanks, Alan. Thanks heaps, guys. That was the No Nonsense Agile Podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.